Before we begin, let us all take a moment to bring our hands together in veneration of the perfect one, the most magnificent one. He who is the symbol of all things good and great, the epitome of morality, the paragon of virtue, the fount of wisdom, the infinitely merciful, boundlessly compassionate, the Tathagata, the fully awakened one, the supremely enlightened one. He is our guide, our teacher, our master. He who teaches us the path to liberation, freedom, once and for all. And as we do so, let us also remind ourselves that this is more than just a veneration. This is us reminding ourselves why we are here, our purpose, our resolve, our inspiration, our motivation. We are here to free ourselves and to help others along the way. Let us renew our pledge, our oath, reminding ourselves that there is no other bliss than the supreme bliss of Nimba. Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato all things considered, listening to the Dhamma and walking this path is actually a fairly new experience for all of us. We are still getting used to it. Because this is not something we've done as many times as perhaps some of the most simpler things in life, like brushing our teeth or going to work, going to a party, getting ourselves an education, and so on. This is an art, both the art of delivery of a sermon as well as the art of listening to one. So you need to become a good artist. Now you might wonder why I'm saying this. Something I often remind my students is that think of me as a mirror. The closer you come, the closer it seems that I am to you. The further you move away, the further it seems that I am to you. It is not the mirror that moves. It is the object, the subject that stands in front of the mirror who decides how close they see their reflection in it. So, when you're here, 
or any sermon for that matter. Allow the person delivering the sermon, the preacher, the priest, the monk, whoever, to be themselves, to be free, to be relaxed, and to give you and offer you the best that they can. You might think I'm telling you off. No, I'm not. I'm just reminding you all that this is an art. What I'm teaching you might be science, but the art of delivery and the art of taking it all in, that's, that's an art. If I'm to explain that a little bit further, what I mean by that is there may be occasions where I will be talking about certain temperaments, personalities, not persons, but rather personalities, idiosyncrasies, the way people are, conduct, behaviors and behavioral patterns. None of that is directed at any one individual in particular. Now, I'm sure you must have heard these words from Guru Tero plenty of times. But there are those in the audience as well as those online. That's another audience out there. And perhaps this is more for them than for you. Because I think having come here plenty of times and gotten to know how all this works, you're probably quite accustomed and very familiar with the way we do things. But on occasion, it might be that perhaps something that is said might touch a nerve with someone. It might upset someone or perhaps it might bother someone. I need you to understand that it is never intended to do so because I'm not attacking individuals. For instance, let's say I spoke to this gentleman and said, Sir, please make sure that you brush your teeth when you get here. Or I spoke to the audience in general and said, Please make sure that you brush your teeth when you leave home. Perhaps there's someone in the audience who hasn't. Just that morning. Normally they do, but just that morning. It would be foolish, I think, for that particular individual to think, ah, so Swami Nas has found out that I haven't brushed my teeth. Or someone snitched on me. They've gone and told it all to Swami Nas and now he's attacking me. No, it is not an attack on anyone. Because if you brush your teeth, that's for you. If you don't brush your teeth, again, that's for me. No, it's still for you. But brushing, a teeth, brushing teeth is a good habit and not brushing your teeth is a bad habit. So if it comes to that, then I will remind people, please do make sure that you brush your teeth. I'm taking a very silly example, but I think you get the idea. Right? Because if you don't allow me that freedom to talk to you freely, liberally, then I'm going to have to start filtering 
what I say. And then I'm going to have to think, what might this gentleman think? What might that lady think? What might this young boy think? What might that gentleman think? And so on. Now, sometimes it's quite challenging, especially when we have new faces in the audience. You got to be here and experience this one day. We always welcome new audiences, new members in the audience, because you know they are here. Their merits have brought them here, and I always encourage people to bring new new people, because like you, everyone was new one day, as was I. But then, when they're not familiar with with perhaps the Swamin Hanse, and maybe their style, then it might some of the things that are said might come across as either offensive or maybe hurtful and so on. I'm not saying anyone has raised any concerns. All I'm saying is allow whoever is giving a talk to you, delivering a sermon, allow them the freedom to speak freely. Now, what happens or what if the things that are being said you don't necessarily agree with? That's okay. You don't have to agree with everything that is said. Sometimes, you know, if you... When you walk to your, let's say, uh, the first aid box, if you've got one at home, and if you don't, you should. See, so I mean, Nancy found out we don't have a first aid box. Right? You walk to your first aid box, you open it, and in there you've got bandages, you've got plasters, you've got painkillers, right? you've got the bombs, you've got this, that, the other. Right? right now, perhaps all you need is a paracetamol because you've got a headache. So you open the first aid box and you take out the paracetamol. Do you throw all the rest of it in the bin? I just need the paracetamol because I've got a headache. What's all this other rubbish in it? Do you put it, dump it all in the bin? No. Because what you don't need, you might not need today, but it might come handy tomorrow. So that is simply being prepared. What you don't need today can come handy tomorrow. So just take what you need. What you don't need, just let it be. Now, my personal approach to things like that would be, if there are things that someone says that upset me, then rather than question why that was said, what I typically do is ask myself, why did that upset me? Because I use that again as a weapon against myself against myself because there's no word that can hurt me or there shouldn't be and if it does it's because then I'm holding on to something perhaps it's a belief perhaps it's an opinion and so on so I think this is more for people online who watch these leisurely maybe they've never come to the monastery and you know, some of the times when we do talks, you know, we relate to our culture. Maybe, you know, there's a certain way that we operate. There's a certain way in which we can, we have that freedom to work. You know, like I said, when on some occasions I took my culture, our culture to a foreign country. And when I tried to be myself there, how things turned out very foul. You know, here we have best friends. We put an arm around their neck just to express our friendship. 
some people, some places you go and do that, they say, oh, I'm not into that kind of sort of thing. Thank you very much. It happened. <laughs> so I learned, okay. So in those, you know, when you go there, you got to be there. When you're in Rome, do like the Romans do. Hmm? So, and I think that's a very important message to take away. You see, now this is very general advice. When you're at your new workplace, if you've changed jobs perhaps, you don't necessarily need to think that you're going to be there forever. Because the truth is you're not. No one's ever going to be anywhere forever. Fair enough? <laughs> That's stating the obvious, right? No one's ever going to be anywhere forever. But whenever you are wherever, be there. Be there. Not where you were. So when you're at home, be at home. Cuddle your wife. Give her an embrace. Give her a peck on the cheek. Hold her hand. Be with your wife when you're with her. When you're with your children, be with your children. Play with them. Tell them stories. Keep them on your lap and give them a good cuddle. Make them feel that daddy is there with them. When you're at the workplace, don't be there like you're at home. Be at the workplace. Because you can't take your wife to work and give her a cuddle there. You won't have work to go to the following day. When you're at the temple, be there. Be at the temple. Because you've come there for a reason. And there's a way that things happen, things work. There's a way that things operate at the temple. You know, you, go, you went to the temple to take something from there. Yeah? If you don't, what's going to happen is you're going to go to the temple to give something, not necessarily take something. But you could have done that staying at home. I think what wise people do, intelligent people do, is whenever they go somewhere, you know, you go on a trip, go to a party, go to school, go to the workplace, be with their friends, go to the temple, they be there. Not be where they were. They be there. So I encourage you all, when you're here, be here. But don't be here when you're at home. Don't do that. That's asking for trouble. Don't be here when you're with your friends. Hmm? When you're on a trip, going on holiday, when you're by the beach, playing beach ball with your friends, you know, be there. Don't be here. When you score a goal and you're playing football, celebrate. Don't go, you know, Then why the heck do you play football? Stay at home. When someone offers you, you know, some pudding and, you know, they've worked their socks off, perhaps, you know, They've burned the midnight oil preparing it for you and for you specifically, especially for you, right? And you know they've taken all that trouble to do it for you. Share with them some kind words. Tell them, thank you. Thank you so much for going that extra mile for me. 
I can't believe how much you worked hard to prepare that for me. Thank you so much. Be honest in, those, in, the, in that appreciation. That's important. At that moment, don't say what you give is what I get. So the fact that it's good doesn't mean, doesn't have anything to do with how, how great culinary skills you have. It's because I've given this, so I get this. No, no, don't do that at home. <laughs> don't do that at the restaurant. When the waiter comes and asks you, how was the food, sir? Hmm? The what? There's no food, there's simply a manifestation. <laughs> then why did you go to the restaurant? <laughs> there's simply a manifestation. Then go to a cave and live in that. So don't, do, don't be like that. Again, I'm not saying anyone in, in particular is like that. So that's what I'm saying. You know, don't take any of this personally. Right? Some of this will, you will be able to relate better than, to some, than other things. Right? Some, of, some of the advice I give you, you will be able to relate to better than some of the other pieces of advice I give. That's okay. Because you know, this is a mixed audience. You get all sorts. And again, I don't mean that offensively. You get all sorts. You get people from all walks of life. You know, if I say, you know, don't get into you know, useless arguments with your, with your other half, doesn't mean I'm talking about the argument that you had last night. I don't know that. I've got better things to do. <laughs> I don't know that. But, you know, it, it might strike a chord with you. You know, it might hit a nerve and think, oh, he's talking about the argument I had last. Maybe my wife went and told him all about that. No. Your wife doesn't come and tell me anything. <laughs> and even if she did, I wouldn't be interested. I'd tell her, you know, that's your problem, madam. You should have conducted yourself better. Perhaps been more, 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 more you know, receptive to what he had to say and so on. Anyhow, the point being, Right? None of this is directed. I don't have, you know, an, a bow and arrow where I pick it up and I, you know, who am I going to shoot today? Ah, there you go, that gentleman there. I don't do that. This is just, you know, this is love. This is compassion. This is just, I'm just being generous. And do allow me to be that way. Because I don't know whose merits are working today, whose merits are maturing today. I don't know. So I just come here, sit down, and have a good look at your faces. And the only thing I look at your faces for is not to think, is he in a good mood, bad mood? Did he have a fight last night? I'm not trying to read you. It's not, that's not that. I'm just contemplating on metta. All I'm doing is, you know, all each of these phases, you know, they've done tremendous amounts for me in Sansara. They've been, you've all been mothers to me and fathers to me, brothers and sisters to me. Taken care of me, sheltered me, fed me, looked after me, done all sorts, right? And this is my opportunity to pay back, to give back. Perhaps the only chance I'm going to get. Maybe this is the last day that we'll meet. So, I want to make the most of that opportunity. And 
it's best done when it's unfiltered. That's not to say any of you have requested any of that. I'm just saying, especially for our listeners online, because I can't see their faces. So some of the things I say, you know, you know, I'm, I'm just kidding. Right? Sometimes, you know, I'm just pulling your leg. You know, I'm just, you know, being sarcastic, but in a very friendly way. But sometimes, you know, someone listening online might think, ooh, that was a bit strong. That was a bit stern. But then they don't see me outside this room, do they? They don't know what I'm like when I'm, when I've, when I'm not in this seat. Right? So this is a very different personality than when I'm, when I'm not here. So anyway, the long and short of that is, be here. So don't be in the office where you're the boss. But when I come to your office and you're the boss, you're the boss. Right? I won't take your seat. You take your seat. I will sit down. If you give me a bench, I'll sit down there. Give me a stool, I'll sit down there. If you say it's on the floor, today's Swaminas, I'll sit on the floor, it's fine. Because you're the boss there. And I have a, if I come to your home, don't you be getting any ideas. I'm just saying, right? right? If I come to your home, then you, know, you tell me what to do. You call the shots. You're the boss. Right? Here, he's the boss. I'm not the boss, he's the boss. Right? So, when we are here, when we are all here, you know, when I'm here as a monk, right, I embrace everything about this place. If I don't like this monastery, I'll pack my things, which I have very few of, but I will pack my things and I will move, go somewhere else. But when I'm there, I will embrace that. Then if that place is no good for me, I might go to somewhere, I might go somewhere else. And when I'm there, I'll embrace that. Because the reason I'm leaving here and going there is because I want to be there, not here. But if I take baggage from here and, take, and go there, then you've got to ask the question, why did you go there? Does that make sense to everyone? I mean, I think that's just very good, sound advice for any facet of life. Whenever you're there, wherever you are, you know, just be there. Just be there. Be there. Be wholeheartedly 100% there. Because that's when you get to experience what that is all about. It might be that you might decide, no, this place isn't for me. And you pack up and leave. Remember, there are others who are still there. And it might just be that the reason that others are there and they've been there for such a long period of time is because they have now become part of that. They have embraced it. Whereas if you have perhaps gone there, you've taken part of you, and you want part of that and part of you. Now, those two things don't mingle. It's difficult to mix. It's like if you're, if, you're, if you're water and you want to be with oil and you're not prepared to change your ways, right? You can't be there. And if you're oil and you want to be with water, you can't be there because those two things never mix. So if you want to be there, be there. Does that make sense? Good. You've all made a conscious choice to come here and be present. It is your merits that have brought you here. And it is your merits that will keep you here. And it's your merits that will help you understand 
whatever you hear from here on. The reason I say it's your merits is because that is all there is. It's not a case of I have merits or you have merits. They're simply merits. Merits is an energy. It's a force. It's a force when it comes to fruition. Until then, it's just energy. It's like the energy, like potential energy. You know, energy in a battery. You can convert it to force when you plug it to something, maybe a motor or something. It becomes a force. Until then, it's energy. The mind is an energy. It's an energy source, in fact. The mind generates energy. And it is this energy that we consume. And that is what you are. The way you look today, the way you are today, all of this is determined by the energy that the mind once released. They say you are what you eat. Heard that? You know, nutritionists and dietists will tell, dietitians will tell you that you are what you eat, but you are also what you think. You are what you think. Your intentions, your volition determines what you are, who you become. It is trying to understand this phenomenon that will set you free. In Buddhist philosophy, there's a lot of talk about suffering, isn't there? I talk about happiness, 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 and the Buddha comes in this world and he talks about suffering, 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 so much. He loves suffering so much, he speaks of it all the time. And the very first sermon he gives is also about what? Suffering. What a gloomy fellow he was. All he did was talk about suffering. Hmm? Did he ever talk about the first noble truth of happiness? No. What does he talk about? Like there wasn't enough suffering before he came along. <laughs> he comes along and says, the first noble truth of suffering. You know, if the typical, the average Joe was there, they'd be like, another one. And I thought we were here to talk about happiness. My life is full of it. And I come here and sit down and listen to him, this man who says he's become the fully awakened one and he's fully awakened to suffering. At least the next thing he's going to say might be about happiness. So let's see what he has to say next. The second noble truth. Yes. Of. Yes. Suffering. Oh, God. You know, if anyone convinced someone to come along, you know, maybe a friend, and said, you know, you come here, come here, and we're going to get the truth. We're going to get nothing but the truth. And this is going to be the perfect thing you've ever heard. Uh, that guy's going to start saying, Oi, you asked me to come along for this nonsense. You know, he's just talking about suffering, suffering, suffering. I know life is suffering. Like, tell me something I don't know. Wait, let's listen to the next one at least. Then he talks about the third noble truth. At least, you know, he's kind enough to include the word cessation of which is nice of him. <laughs> but then, again, he says the cessation of suffering. By this time, you know, most people would have, they get fed up, they pick themselves up and they leave. 
And then the, finally, the path to the cessation of gains, suffering. So why is Bhante always going on about happiness if Buddha only came to talk about suffering? If Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, right, and all you talk about is suffering, then what's the whole point of Buddhism? Why embrace this as a, as a philosophy or even a religion? If all they talk about is suffering. I mean, this, is, this might be a question that you might get from others, people of other faiths, people of other beliefs, right? Because people want to be happy, and there's a, there's a religion that talks about nothing but suffering. You're going to have a tough time convincing someone <laughs> to come to a temple and listen to a sermon, right? Or at least listen to something the Buddha has to say, because the very first sermon he gives, he talks about nothing other than suffering. I mean, that's not setting a good example of what's to come, right? If you, if you ask the Buddha, really. So now we've got to... We've got to get it straight in our heads. If someone asks you this question, I want to be happy, give me a philosophy that teaches, you, teaches me how to be happy. And then you present to them the Dhamma Chakka Pavatana Sutta. And all it talks about is suffering, 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 suffering. And in fact, if you took the Tripitaka, right, the three canons, and you t- flick through its pages, or if you did a quick Google search, you know, internet search, whatever, right, you'll find the word suffering or dukkha appear in it more times than perhaps happiness or bliss. You'll talk more times about suffering than the other. So then it seems like, you know, this is a religion, this is a a philosophy that is more inclined, you know, to a very negative state of affairs. It doesn't sound positive at all. So then we have, we have this problem. So what is Buddhist philosophy? Why is it only talking about suffering? When people believe that they are happy, which people do, I mean, this is why we talked about one of the other, the other weeks, why it's so difficult to try and help people understand that we have happiness to offer them because they're like, I already have it. I don't want to buy a second pair of slippers. I already got one. This This really is a paradigm shift. You know, you've got to have, that's why I said, you know, right at the start, you've got to have a lot of merits to even sit through a sermon. Just to sit through one. And with an open mind, listen to what is being said. You know, just think about it. Nothing or everything you hear in a a talk, in a sermon that is about Buddhist philosophy, about the Four Noble Truths, goes against everything you've held right and dear to your heart. You know, not not today, not this week, not this year, right? Throughout sansara. It goes against everything you thought was right. This is why they say it's like turning something the right side up when it was always the right side down. It's like lighting a lamp in the darkness. It's a complete shake of the system. This is the inverse of whatever you thought was right. This is one over. 
whatever you thought was right. It's the inverse of it. So it, it's a hard philosophy to, to stomach if you don't get it right, if you don't have the merits to understand it. Now, you're all here, you're all listening to this. That alone is evidence that there is sufficient merits that has got you this far. What we need is merits to get us to the next step. Buddha's philosophy speaks about how something so fundamentally true to you is the biggest lie ever. People live their lives attempting to satisfy the unsatisfiable. They attempt to go through life trying to fulfill something that cannot be filled. To make happy something that cannot be made happy. To complete something that can never be made complete. But they believe that that is what they have to be doing. Now everyone knows that there is something going wrong, something's, something's not right. That is what brings someone to a preacher, to a monk, to a priest in the first place. Something's not right. But it can't be this, surely. Ask you know, the, the typical guy, you take them to a, to a temple, you know, maybe even a, even, a, even a beggar, right? Bring them to a temple, ask them, you know, I'm going to get a monk to give you a sermon. Right, what would you like to hear about? What, do you, what would you like for him to talk to you about? And they'll say, you know, there are problems I have in my life. Right? There, are, there are problems. I've got issues. I want someone to help me work through them. What sort of issues? If you ask them, they'll tell you. They'll give you a whole list of them. But the fact of the matter is, we are not here to answer any of them. It's like going to the dentist and asking for candy. Not candy with a K, you know, the candy that you eat. Because where's the last place on earth you'll find candy? At the, at the dentist. Because what's the dentist's advice? Don't eat that stuff. So someone wants candy and they go to the dentist. Can I have some candy? You don't do that stuff here. See, it was pointless me coming here. What the dentist will try and explain to you is why candy is bad for you. You shouldn't be eating that stuff. It's not good for your teeth. Ah, not what I came here for. Let's go, let's go, let's go. When, there are, when there's so much to offer, when there are so many options available, why should I be here? These are some of the problems that people have when they first try to cross this barrier. You've all crossed it, right? So this is not the first time I've seen your faces. You've all crossed that. You've all jumped that, that gap, that bridge. Try and explain to someone that this is not a saucer. You know, you can't blame them for thinking, right, I better get up and leave. This man's lost his mind. Try and explain to someone 
that you are not a man or a woman or even a human being. I mean, the most basic, most fundamental concepts that you believe are true. It's what you've built your whole life upon. To say that the foundation of what you build your life was all false. You know, how many people can stomach that? It's like saying your mother's not really your real mother. You know, the mother that you grew up, the mother who fed you, the mother who looked after you, carried you, loved you, and the mother that you've been looking after ever since, and to say, you know, that is not your mother. That's, that's a shock, right? I mean, you don't want to hear that, that sort of thing. It's something more, it's something even more than that. Because people can make their minds up eventually if given the right facts, you know, it is proved to them that this is, although you thought this was your mother, she's not because, you know, you were adopted and this is your biological mother, this is the other lady, this is not this lady. Oh, well, now I can see the facts. I have perhaps no choice than to accept it. But this is something that goes even beyond that. It questions your very existence. The very thing that you feel, experience, and believe is true, if nothing else, right? that very thing is put under the microscope. And it's questioned, and it's proven to be false. Your very existence is simply a lie. This sounds very theoretical. That is why we need to take it one step at a time and try to explain some of these concepts. I want to take a few moments to try and help you understand the concept of anicca. Because you say, you know, that you know, we've, we've now come to use these words like manifestation, cause and effect, right? Things come together and they only last very, a very short period of time. Everything's transient and so on. These are all words we've come to learn. We've practiced them for a long period of time. And there are various connotations that come to our mind. And besides, your five senses don't support this theory. Your five senses feed you information, data, all the time, giving you evidence of the, of the opposite of that. Because you can see me right now, can't you? So through your eyes, you see an entity. You see a person. And then to say, I'm not a person... That is why the physical lie does not behold the truth. You need to open your wisdom mind. This is not something that you will see physically. This is only something that you will realize. So you need your real eyes for that. Sorry, I couldn't help it. You can't see it through these eyes. You need your real eyes. So open your real eyes. I'm going to put a word on the board and you tell me what that means to you. 
Can you all read that from the back? No? Yeah? Okay. What does that say? Ant. Now, when you read that word, something comes to mind, doesn't it? You all have an image of something. An image of an ant, hopefully. Can you read that? Hello. Now when you read that word, again something comes to mind. Yeah? So do Hello please to run away. Hmm? So this has a connotation. This brings something to mind. This brings something to mind. Yeah? Now put these two things together. Is it the combination of this and this that comes to mind now? When I say antelope, are you thinking of an ant that's eloping? Hmm? Ah. So how come this and this came together to give you an entirely different thing to what these two gave you individually. See, when you, when you read that word, something came to mind. When you read that word, something came to mind. And the moment I gave these two together, these two images were completely wiped, formatted. Yeah, completely wiped out. And something entirely different replaced it. See how that happens. This is here to give you, I'm not necessarily talking about an antelope or an ant or an eloping. I'm trying to give you an analogy of the concept that I'm trying to get across to you. It's something like this. I'm not talking about an ant, not talking about antelopes, right? I'm talking about the concept I'm trying to get across to you and an analogy to help you figure that. Now, the same way, you see this, the pen, you see this, the cap, right? Now together, when you see these two together, you feel that this cap is part of this pen. It belongs to it, don't you? That is why if I were to do this, and then I did this, and then I left the two pens here, right? You walk up and you replace the caps on the respective pen because that's when you feel the world is at peace. That's when you feel that you can settle. Now ignore the fact that this doesn't fit properly. That wasn't part of the plan, right? But just imagine that these the two pens were the same make, same model, and so on. But looking at this, you feel something's not right. Right? Yeah? You feel that this cap belongs to this pen, and this cap belongs to this pen. It's more than just a knowledge. It's more than just a knowledge. You feel uncomfortable looking at this, don't you? Don't you? 
Don't you feel uncomfortable? Something not right? I mean, if I left this like this. Yeah. It is vexatious. Because you say, you know, can you please set it right? Then if I've stood these two up like this and continued with the sermon, some members of the audience will not be able to focus on anything I say from here on. Because all they can focus on is how these two things are not right. There's chaos. I've just introduced chaos into your world. So now you want to set it right. Think about this. I'm trying to get across this concept in, a, in as simple words as, as I possibly can to you. Because you feel that when the parts come together, there's a sum that is greater than the parts. You feel that there's an entity that defines how things have to be together. That is why when you look at yourself in the mirror, you see an entity and you go, this is me, this is part, this is, these are parts of me. This is why when you see perhaps a strand of hair in your plate and you're at the restaurant, right? don't you find that unsettling? Again, I'm not talking about you now, okay? I'm talking about the average person. I'll, I'll fix this later. Try and listen to the sermon first. When you go to the restaurant and you see that, that, that hair, not H-A-R-E hair on your plate, that would be okay, but you know, the H-A-I-R hair, a strand of hair on your plate, right? If it was yours, wouldn't bother you as much, would it? Compared to if it was someone else's. Now say, you know, while you're, yeah, while you're having your lunch, your dinner, right? A strand of hair fell from your head and onto the plate. Yeah? What would you do? Would you ask the waiter? Waiter, can't have this from here on. Take it away, please. Why, sir? Hair fell. Whose? Mine. I mean, you wouldn't do that, would you? You'd just take it away. Ooh, you might even apologize you know, to the other people on your, on the, on the, on your table. Take it away and you, you, you continue eating. But you, when you know it's not yours, when you know it's not yours, it bothers you, doesn't it? I'm talking about that feeling. I'm talking about how do you work that out? You know, let's analyze that feeling. Because these are some of the feelings and emotions that you have to come across in life. And you always thought, that's wrong. You know, this hair should not be here. But my hair is okay. This hair should not be here. I have a very similar experience once. Um, so when I was in the UK, I learned that there are fake fingernails. Apparently there are. Do you know that? There are fake fingernails. So it's people wear it for fashion. That's fine. You know, horses for courses. So, so one, one day, uh, I saw a fingernail in, at, in the office. 
I was like, whose fingernail is this? That's the day I realized that there are fake fingernails. I mean, first it spooked me. <laughs> Ooh, fingernail. So then I looked around and I saw another, there was a lady. And I'd seen those fingernails on her hand. So I thought, oh, poor lady, she's lost a fingernail now. You know, she must be hurt. So, you know, here's me very concerned about my colleague who just lost her fingernail. Right? So I, I ran up to her and said, I think her name was Jane. So I said, Jane, you know, are you all right? Do you need some help? She said, what? I, you know, I, I think you've lost a fingernail. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you didn't know? No, because they're not real. They're fake. So then I saw her fingernail, and then I realized why she wears fake fingernails. <laughs> I won't say any more, right? So anyhow, I brought it back. Uh, well, uh, no, I said, I said it, it's there. So now I realized that it was her. So I was more now concerned about the fact that she lost her fingernail than the fact that she was hurt. Because initially I thought she was hurt and she needed medical help. So. I took the fingernail and gave it back to her. Now, today, I think about that situation. You know, fingernails are sometimes, you know, things that people feel very, what's the word, very uh, uh, queasy, very, yeah, re re repulsive, repulsive, yes, thank you. Some feel very repulsive about, right? yucky fingernails. Hmm? Hair, maybe dead skin cells, mm. repulsive. Sweat, repulsive. Spit, repulsive. Right? Uh, boogies, nose boogies, mm. repulsive. Right? So if you if you saw something like that, right? I think one of the first questions that come to people's mind is, whose is it? Think about it. If you were to see something like maybe you're in the, in the washroom, you see, you know, a, a boogie left behind by uh, <laughs> your roommate, right? Now, you, you don't know, did I leave this or was it hers? Uh, do I touch it or do I, you know, maybe hold the hand bidder because <laughs> I don't want to touch it? The, the, because the question that comes to your mind is, whose is it? It's, it's a very important question to you at that moment. Just like that hair. Just like the hair in your, in, your, in your plate, right? On your plate. Whose is it? Because if it's mine, it's okay. But if it's somebody else's, it's not okay. The question is, when did that hair become yours? Just like when did this cap become this pens, and when did this cap become this pens? If, I, if you imagine these pens were identical, except for the color, right? that in itself is enough for you to recognize that the difference in color is simply for you to recognize that one belongs to one and one to the other. If I just brought you know, two identical pens, same color, you wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to do this experiment with you. That is the only difference, the only reason I'm, I'm showing you two pens different colors. But now you know that this cap belongs to this pen, this cap belongs to that pen. And that is unsettling. Then we talk about the other day how, you know, at, at a wedding, uh, people get married and, you know, you drink from the same straw. 
You sleep on the same bed. You eat from the same plate. Now you even feed each other. Right? But what if a stranger came up to you and said, I want to feed you. And they mix the food. And then, you know, they said, right, open your mouth. You would. Right? And go, ah. <laughs> you wouldn't be eating that. Because that, that would be very unsettling. Why? Think about this. Why? Because in your mind, you have created, you can't help this, you have created an entity to which or to whom all things in this world belong to. Everything in this world belongs to someone. All these things belong to someone. Your hair belongs to someone, right? Who does it belong to? To you. Your skin belongs to someone. That is to you. Your nails belong to someone. That is to you. Your, your sweat belongs to someone. That is to you. That's why if, you, if someone gave you, ah, uh, would you ever use someone else's towel? Think about it. Just think about it. Mm, would you use someone else's towel? Now, I'm not talking medically. Right? Medically, the doctors will say, you know, it's got germs, it's got, it's got, you know, bacteria, you know, you can get infections and so on. So don't use it against medical advice. But let's just say two people, they're perfectly fine in the pink of their health, right? And different towels, someone, a stranger's towel, and they're perfectly fine. Medically, nothing wrong with them. Very few people will be able to say okay to it, but still they'll feel that it's not mine. It's somebody else's. I'm asking you, what about the towel is the somebody else's part? What about that towel is somebody else's? What about the brush is yours? That's why you wouldn't brush with someone else's tooth toothbrush. It's very uncomfortable. Hmm? If you forget to take your brush, maybe you're, you're going to go on a trip. You might do it with your closest family members. You might do that. But still you will feel that this is my other house, this is my, you know, my, my brothers or so on, right? But still, you know, you, you can't stop yourself from feeling that way. If I say, drink some of this water, right? And then I leave it here, and then someone feels thirsty. You can't now help feeling the fact that this cup has been drunk by someone, the water's been drunk by someone, and something about it means that I can't, I can't take it from here on. You feel, you know, people will say it, it's dirty, it's impure. But what they're really saying is, this now belongs to someone. People will say, you know, this is manners, good manners, bad manners, and so on. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that feeling that you get. This, how you perceive that these objects in the world, right, things in this world have ownership to individuals. But do they really? Think about it. What about this cap says that it belongs to this pen? You might tell me color, but I'm only bringing you different colors here just to do the experiment. If they were the same color, what about this cap tells you that it belongs to this pen? Nothing. It's just the feeling. It's just the feeling that this cap came from this pen. Right, I'm going to relieve you now from your, yeah, 
Right, now let's start the sermon, shall we? <laughs> Try and capture this sense of ownership that you have. How you feel this feeling of repulsiveness about some things. Why is it that you feel it uncomfortable when you have to use someone else as something, you know, or sleep where someone else has slept, for instance. And if you go to a hotel, right, and you know that the, the, the linen have, has not been washed, right? So just think about, I'm, I, I know, you know, this might sound like, can you talk about something nice for a second, please? There's nothing particularly wrong about it. That's what I'm trying to say. But you feel that it's not nice. You feel that something's not right about it. And I'm talking about that feeling. Because it's not a feeling that an arahant has. That is why it's wrong. An arahant doesn't feel that way. So if you're feeling something an arahant doesn't feel, then either the arahant has to change or you have to change. So an arahant does not see someone else's bed. He knows this bed is slept by somebody else, typically, usually, right? But that feeling that you get that, mm, you don't want to really sleep here. You know, the linen has not been washed. Uh, the bed linen, someone slept here. I don't want to sleep here. And you know it's perfectly clean. Except for the fact that it hasn't been washed. It's clean. As in, there's, there's no bacteria on it, right? Nothing like that. But you feel that there's something about them in it, right? And the same in other places in, in life. You know, if you, why when you were perhaps, you know, going out with someone, right? In a, in a relationship, in an affair with someone, you know, why did you ask her for her handkerchief? Think about it. You know, why was it that something that she used was very precious to you? Why is your grandmother's ring or her tiara huh? or her, maybe her, you know, something that she wore? Why is it so precious to you? What about it has your grandmother about it? Why, why do people do that? You know, why do people keep things that someone gave to them because, and, and they say, it's very special to me? Because they feel something that's not there in that object. Because no one else senses that. Let's be honest, no one else senses it. These are things that people do, right? You know, they share things that belong to them. Their personal belongings are shared as an expression of, of love. Something that people do. You know, this is mine. I want you to keep it to, to what? To remember me. Why doesn't the guy say, right, here's 10 rupees. Go to the shop and buy something to remember me. <laughs> no, it's not the, it doesn't have the same effect. Because that came from the shop. This came from her. Can you relate to this? I, I, I want you to try and think along these examples. It's not the same, is it? If you have your father's car, for instance, it's very special. That's a, that has what you call sentimental value. You, if you ask a, a, a valuer to come and value the car, what would they check? They check the steering, right? they check under the bonnet, they check the engine, they check the brakes, they check all the parts of the car, and then they'll give you a value, right? And they'll say, right, this car, uh, you know, five thousand. You say, dude. My father's car, this is. And his grand, my grandfather passed it down to my father. 
And now I got this, I inherited this car. You're telling me this car is only worth 5,000? What's the value we're going to say? Yeah, I checked under the bonnet. I couldn't see anything about it that, <laughs> that said it was from your father. Is it in the boot? Because there's nothing about the car that gives that value to it. But you still feel it, don't you? This is because you're crazy. You're sensing something that's not in there. It's not right that you sense it. But you do. There's a photo at home. You have a photo album, you have a photo at home, right? You maybe have a vase at home, a flower vase. Maybe there are some ornaments that you have at home, maybe above the fireplace. I know we don't have fireplaces here, do we? No. But maybe, you know, on your teapot, right? Maybe it's a TV stand. There's something sentimental, of something of sentimental value. And say the kids are playing at home, that they're throwing balls here and there. And then a ball goes and hits one of those ornaments and now it drops and crashes, right? You could go to the shop and buy another one of those, no problem. And, you know, it's going to be brand new. The way the one you had is, what, 15 years old now. You could buy a brand new one. Which to you is more precious? The old one. How come the old one is more precious to you? You know, how come? Because King Edward... The sixth used this pen. Huh? What about this pen is more special than this pen? We got this from the shop just earlier today. This one, King Edward used it. You think I'd even be able to hold it in my hand if King Edward had really used this? No, because this would be where? In a museum. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> You know, people queue outside museums, don't they? Huh? Been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Huh? The crown jewels. Hmm? Or the, you know, the, the, the old clothes that were worn by the kings and queens and so on. Or his staff. Not his staff, as in his staff. That staff. Hmm. You know, right from, you know, maybe his underwear. Even they have value. They're precious. They're priceless. How so? Why is the, why is the bicycle that your little son rode when he was five years, six years, seven years old, so much more precious to you and valuable to you than a brand new bike. I couldn't swap it with that, would I? Maybe you still keep it. He, drew, he rode it when he was five. He's now 35. He left home. He's married. He's got kids. And his kids, they've got a bike. But you still keep that bike. Why? Think about it. Think about it. Anyone else would come come to your house, you know, and say, you know, I need the, house, the place cleaned. Huh? 
if you ask someone to come and clean your place, you know, maybe you ask a maid or someone, maybe, you know, someone who cleans, right? there are companies that do deep cleaning services, right? You ask someone to clean, you know, old trash, rubbish, what, they, what might they do? They'll throw it out. But before they start, what would you say? Don't touch this. Don't touch that one. They're like, why? This is just an old, how dare you? This is not just a bit of old metal. This is my son's, this is my son's bike. You know, mothers here, they probably still have the dummy that their child used when they were a kid. You know, the teat. Yeah, we probably still have that. Some people keep hold of, you know, old teeth. My son's first tooth that fell out of his mouth. Or maybe his appendix. <laughs> people do that. Would you believe it? People do that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying, I want you to think about why people do it. And if you do, if you do that, if you've done that in the past, if you're planning on doing that in the future, right? How come you sense something about it that nobody else does? Then it, you've, got to, you've got to accept, haven't you, that it's not something objective. It's not intrinsic. It's not part of that object. It's something you sense. It's something you perceive that's not in it. Do you know why you perceive that? That's the thing. You feel that something about it belongs to your son, to your daughter, to your children, to your wife. Absolutely, sir. It's because you feel that there's an entity that doesn't really exist. There's an entity... There's, there's a sentient being which you attribute to the object that doesn't really exist. It's like when Ant and Ilo came together. Something that, didn't, that, don't, that don't exist in these two words. There's no antelope in this. There's no antelope in this. But there's an, you know, as ant here. Is there ant here? What happened to the ant when, I, when you take these two as one word? Where did the ant go? There wasn't one. What happened to the elope? There wasn't one either. So when the two of them came together, now you have a completely different image. I'm talking about the perception in your mind, right? You saw this and an ant came into mind. The, 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 the perception of an ant. You saw this and elope came into mind. But the two together, now something completely different comes to mind. It replaces what you had in there previously. Means neither ant nor elope were there in the first place. I didn't intend for, for either ant or elope to be on the board here. And I didn't intend for that in, to come into your mind. My intention was to trick you. See? And you were. How so? Because the mind is able to conjure up various things, various perceptions which don't really exist in the real world. But that is why you suffer. It's when you feel that this was given to me by my father, by my grandmother, by my grandfather, right? This belonged to King Edward, right? When you believe that that has that sentimental value, now think about how much you commit yourself to protecting this. If, you know, if there was a fire at home, perhaps the first thing you're going to save hmm, is that old bike because that that connects you to your little child. 
But there are some things more valuable at home, but not to you. So you see, these things that, are, that we call consider valuable are not in the object. It's how you perceive those objects. Now you've got to start wondering, why did Swami Nuhansi leave that worldly life? <clears throat> you've got to start now figuring out answers. Why does someone who understands this philosophy, who understands this philosophy, leave behind a, world, a, world, a worldly life where the average man, woman, would think to be very valuable, precious? Because once you begin to understand that those things intrinsically have no value, then why hold on to them? Because the more you hold on to them, the longer you hold on to them, you are their guardian. You have to take care of it. You have to protect it. You have to preserve it. You have to keep an eye on it. You have to watch out for it. All the baggage, all the trouble, all the worries that come with that are yours. But the truth is, it was never in it. That is why another person, you know, they don't perceive that. Only you do. You know, that special bond that you feel with your wife or your husband, no one else feels that, do they? Think about this for a second. No one else feels that. Is it, it's not biological, is it? It's not scientific, is it? It's not mathematical. It's not logical. But one fine day, as the gentleman pointed out, is it, isn't it attachment? Yes. You see, one fine day, you allowed your mind to attach to a person who you, from then on, considered to be your wife. Nothing like that happened in this world. Nothing changed in this world. Now, one moment ago she wasn't, now she is. You both got onto the poorer, right? Tied your two little fingers together, and you said, right, from here on, you and I, till that do us part, right? And all that. Now you got off the poorer. All of a sudden, you're man and wife. Nothing changed in this world. Physically, nothing changed. But for you, everything changed. Didn't it? Everything changed for you. From now on, all those troubles are now your troubles. All those problems are now your problems. Looking after her, taking care of her, keeping her safe was her father's trouble until then. But now it's all yours. Now, ladies, please forgive me. I'm only talking about one half of this equation. You can balance out the other half. Right? The same, same thing. Right? Same thing. But nothing changed in the world, did it? She didn't change physically. You didn't change physically. You know, in one moment, the whole world has changed. From, you know, in that one moment, in that split second where, yeah, now we have all agreed that we are husband and wife and so on, right? You have gone from being a free bird. Huh? Oh, those days, so I mean, not so, huh? you've gone from being a free bird to a captivated I don't want to use any words that might, <laughs> you might come out as offensive. <laughs> you, yeah, right? You, you've, you've become a captivated soul. That's because when you separate something for yourself, right? when you separate something for yourself, you lose out every time, every single time. When you are just a... When you are a free man, when you are a free man, no one laid down any barriers, any boundaries to who you could talk to, who you could smile at, right? 
whose hands you could hold and couldn't as friends. Now, you could be friends with everybody. But then one fine day, you thought, no, that's not good enough. I want something for myself. When you did that, at that moment, you had to surrender your right, your freedom, your privilege to smile with all. Now you can only smile with one woman. Now you can only smile, talk, right? hold hands, give a hug to one woman. Until then, you belong to everybody and everybody belonged to you. We were all just one. But you see, the moment you separate, that goes against nature. Nature is not meant to separate. Nature is for all. And if you look around you, it's the same thing, you know, time and time again. You know, the, the land, land is for all. Land is for all. The trees, the birds, it's, it's for all. The water, the air, it's for all. But the moment you separate something for yourself, now you have to sustain yourself with that. Because that moment you, you separate something, then somebody else will, will also have to do that. Because it seems like people are started separating. So if I don't separate my part, right, then what's going to happen? I'm going to lose out. So the moment one person starts to do it, everybody has to do it. So then everyone starts to separate their own things. Now you have your land, they have their land. You have your trees, they have their trees. You have your water, they have their water. They have your air, they have their air. That's the only thing that they haven't separated yet. But they will very soon. You know, right from people to places to things to natural resources, everything. You know, they have to, you have to separate. But when you separate, now what nature says is, you know what, up until now I looked after you. This is nature. This is mother nature. That's a good word, mother nature. Right? Mother nature says, up until now I looked after you. I, I took care of you. I gave you everything you needed. But you didn't allow me to do that. You wanted to fend for yourself, right? Fair enough, then go and do it. If you want to abandon me and go and be your own, be on your own, look after and fend for yourself, then fine, go do it. And sort it all out. You know, just yesterday I was talking with one of our Swami says He was looking around and saying, you know, Swami said, do you know this is a herb? He was telling me. I said, okay, this is for, you know, kidney problems and so on. This is another herb. You know, it's for problems with the liver and so on. This is another herb. You know, it's good for digestion and so on. He was pointing out various herbs in the, in the monastery. Herbal plants, right? And, and he said, you know, back in the day, people used to have all this. And th that is why people didn't have, you know, these various diseases like uh, cholesterol, high cholesterol and diabetes and you know all, the, all these problems, high blood pressure and so on because people were with nature and so we got into a, you know, into a brief discussion we said yeah I mean isn't that so true because back then mother nature looked after all her children nature gave man and beast everything they needed nature doesn't bring into this world anything that she can't sustain she doesn't do that you know, 8 billion people she can handle without, a, without any problem. That's no problem for her. But what happens is, when each and every one of that 8 billion people, because of ignorance and attachment, now they start to separate something for themselves. Now there isn't enough space for us to live in this world. There isn't enough food. Because once you start to separate, look at people have done for themselves. Now they live in concrete jungles. Right? And in those concrete jungles, you don't have those herbs. You don't have those, you don't have nature. You don't have the rivers. You don't have the streams. Because they've all been separated now. 
it all belongs to a small group of people or one individual. It doesn't belong to everybody as it, it's meant to be. Now, this, this might sound very uh, utopian. And say, I, I'm not saying let's go back to that because it's, it's simply impossible. Virtually impossible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to explain to you how things got this bad and what you can do individually as a person from now on. And now people start to live in these concrete jungles. Now they don't have those herbs. So what they have, to, that what they have instead are tablets in a bottle. That they have to take one after breakfast, one after lunch, and one after dinner every day for the rest of their lives with its side effects. That's what's happened to people. Once you start to separate, now you have to fend for yourself. It's like, you know, when children are with their parents, the parents look after them, right? But when a child says, no, that's it, I don't want anymore, I can go and fend for myself. All right, fine, then go and fend for yourself. Now the parents have no ability. They don't, they're not able to, to do what they used to be able to do. The same goes in nature. Same concept applies. No, I was digressing. Come back to the principle I was trying to explain to you. This feeling that you are a separate entity is the cause of all of your headaches, is the cause of all of your heartaches. Because when you fall into this separate entity perception, when you feel that you are a separate sentient being, everything in this world now has a belonging or an ownership attached to it. And what comes with ownership? Responsibility. Fear. And grief. When this pen is not yours, it's just a pen to write. But when this pen is yours, then along with that comes fear and along with that comes grief. How so? Fear that something might happen to it and grief when it eventually does. Now, you might say, yes, but that is not my pen, Swaminans, it's your pen. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's somebody's pen, isn't it? So someone, somewhere, is suffering on behalf of it. I'm not in the business of separating your suffering and my suffering because ultimately it's all suffering. We are trying to find an answer to suffering, not your suffering or my suffering. The very feeling that you feel that there's your suffering and my suffering, again, is suffering in the first place. Because that, you know, even we, we even separate suffering. Who's suffering? Whose is this suffering? Is it my suffering? Is it your suffering? Is it their suffering? Because some sufferings you're okay with. Some sufferings you're not. You know, if your enemy is suffering, aren't you okay with that? Again, I'm not asking personally. This is just a general question, right? If your enemy is suffering, it's okay, right? Just think about when you're watching a movie, right? When the bad guy gets beaten up, right? Even you, you, you throw a few punches <laughs> just to be on the safe side. Even you throw a few punches. But when your friend is suffering, that suffering is not good. You don't want that suffering. See, even suffering now has ownership. His suffering and my suffering. If someone cheated on you, hmm, 
in a relationship or in some other kind of business or whatever, right? And they eventually, because of what they did, or somehow, you know, they got caught out, the, the, the authorities, you know, found out, and now they have to go to prison because of what they did, right? Usually, what does the, what does the average man say? Huh? They deserved it. They deserved it. With that kind of face, they deserved it. Hmm? What are they really saying? I'm glad that he's learned his lesson. I'm glad that he's suffering. And he shouldn't have done that to me. You see, if you take out you, me, he, she, they, it, right? If you take out, ultimately what's happened is suffering has come into being. And you're okay with that. This is a very abstract concept and I don't know how many of you can really you know, resonate with what I'm trying to explain to you here. But I, I, think, I think most of you can, but I'm still cautious. Take out he, she, you know, in that situation simply where there's villain and there's, uh, there's the hero, right? You, you're, you're, you're a party with the hero, you don't like the villain, right? Now the hero's beating up the villain and you go, yeah, yeah give him another one. Right? One on me as well. And you're okay with that, right? But then when he retaliates and fights back, and now it's the hero that's getting beaten up, you don't want that. Am I right? Hmm. Now take out villain, take out hero. Now there's beating up, and now there's suffering. But if I say someone's suffering, you have to ask the question, who? Who's suffering? Depending on that, your response is different. So even suffering, before you decide whether we should do away with it or keep it, you have to ask the question, who's suffering? As I say, you know, Buddhas are here for a very different purpose. They have not come here to heal your suffering or my suffering, ladies and gentlemen. You came here to do, to deal away, to do away with suffering, not yours or my suffering. There are no friends and foes in this world. These are all projections of a mind that always wishes to separate. That is why you felt that this cap did not belong to this pen. That is why you feel that your grandmother's ring has something in it that nobody else feels. You know, you take it to a goldsmith. Maybe it's, you know, it's, a, it's got very little gold, if anything at all. Uh, you take it to a goldsmith and ask him, how much is this? Uh, he puts it on the scales and he goes, nah, not a lot. I'll give you this much for it. Take it or leave it. And you go, man, this is my grandmother's. This is a lot more valuable and more precious than that. Come on. What is he going to say? I put it on the scale. This is how much gold it has. That is what I'm going to pay you for it. Take it or leave it. Why does he not feel that what you feel about it being your grandmother's? Because he doesn't sense that. But if it were his grandmother's, huh? now you sense that. You have something that belongs to your grandmother. I have something that belongs to my grandmother. Shall we swap it? Would you feel the same about it? No, but it belonged to a grandmother. So what's the deal then? What's different about it? One's my grandmother's, the other is your grandmother's. So it's not enough for it to just belong to a grandmother. It matters whose grandmother. Huh? Isn't, you know, don't you have an armchair at home? 
Some of you will. Hmm? Whose, whose armchair was that? Uh, our father sat there. This is Apache's, Apache's uh, armchair. And then before him, my grandfather sat there. Right? So that armchair, no one sits on. Hmm? Don't you have that at home? Or maybe a walking stick. Your grandfather's walking stick. Or your grandfather's clock. No, I mean literally. Your grandfather's clock. Not a grandfather's clock. But your grandfather's clock. Or the watch that he wore. Or the, or the briefcase that he took to work. Don't they have very special value about it? You know, that, that, it's not the antiqueness. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not how old it is and therefore, you know, it's very rare nowadays. That's not what I'm talking about. Even that is still based in ignorance. That's, another, that's a story for another day. How come antique things have value? You know, if, it's not, if you're not talking about quality, about how good that and, you know, how sturdy the material is, but rather you're talking about how old it is and therefore it's valuable, that's simply, again, you've gone crazy. Because nothing is old, really. Time is simply an illusion. There's no such thing as new things and old things. There are simply manifestations in the present moment. So things don't age. You don't age. You know, right now, you are as brand new as brand new can be. What's different then from yesterday to today? What's different from 10 years ago to today? Different causes, therefore different result. That's all it is. But these causes in this moment reduce rise to this result in this moment. That's how it works. So how come your grandfather's watch has a sentimental value that I don't perceive? I want you to think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Please, please think about this. How come that has special value? Right? Let's say Guru Thero, right? he gives this to somebody in his last sermon. Huh? Say so many years from today, he decides, you know, this is the last sermon I'm going to do. Hmm? Right from here on, I'm going to retire. Right, and some some little child in noble hearts. Right, he is now the new Guru Tero. Right? You know, you've seen the little little ones, right? So now they are the new Guru Tero, and now he's going to retire. And he says, right, the Vatata that I have been using this far, right, I'm going to give it to one lucky person. You feel something about that, don't you? Yes. He'll slap you with it. Because he'll tell you, it's been worthless. All that effort. Huh? Trying to explain to you that there is nothing in this that is Guru Tehro. Huh? He'll slap you with it. He said, there's nothing in this that is, that is Guru Tehro-ish. Anything but, indeed. This is just a bit of wood, maybe a bit of plastic, maybe a bit of palmyra leaf or whatever. That's all this is. But what you sense as something that belongs to him, it doesn't exist here. But you still sense it. That is because of jati. That's because of jati. Which is another word for dukkha. Which is another word for suffering. Not the suffering that we were, you know, you and I, we've all heard of, experienced before we got to hear the Dhamma. That's a very different suffering. You know, losing loved ones, it brings you suffering, but that's not the suffering that the Buddha speaks of. 
having to associate people that you don't like, it brings you suffering. Yes, I agree. But that's not the suffering that the Buddha speaks of. Because you don't need the Buddha to experience that, do you? If I asked you, why did you come here? And this, remember, think, this is the, imagine this is the first time you are listening to the Buddha Dhamma. Right? And you still come to the temple and ask you, what's wrong? My mother is passing away. She's very old now. She's very feeble. She's very, she's very frail. And I fear she's going to pass away soon. And I don't know how I can pull myself together, Swami Nuhans. I'm really struggling. Please help me. So I ask you, what, so you've come here because you're suffering. Yes, yes, Swami Nuhans, I've come here because you're suffering. Because I'm suffering. And the answer I'm going to have to tell you is, you don't know the first thing about suffering. Tell her, please, I'm an expert in it. See, my mother's passing away and I'm suffering. No, 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 no. You don't know the first thing about suffering. That is not suffering. That is, well, that might be suffering, but that's not the suffering that the Buddha speaks of. Because you don't need the Buddha to experience that suffering. In the Buddha's own words, the noble truths that he speaks of, none can understand except from his instruction or the instruction of his disciples. Because it is only something that an Aryan can understand. In other words, it has to pass through that noble lineage. But even an animal experiences, right? A female dog experiences pain when its puppy gets run over by a car. It experiences that pain. But that is not the suffering that the Buddha speaks of. Because you don't need the Buddha, you know, that, that, that dog didn't never hurt the Buddha Dhamma. So that's not suffering. It's certainly not the suffering that the Buddha speaks of. So what is then the suffering that the Buddha speaks of? That is jati. In other words, the perception that you experience that there is a fixed entity in this world, both here and outside. You experience that you are a self. You experience that you are an individual. These are simply perceptions. Someone asked me last week, so I mean, I said, what did you really mean by knock, knock at the end of the sermon? So I'll remind you, knock, knock. Hmm? You, you got to say something after that. Have you never done a knock knock joke? Huh? You who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you say you who? Hello, you who? <laughs> oh, I'm wasted. Why do I bother? But what did I mean by that? Knock knock. Hmm? Because this is a sound. It's a stimuli. It's a stimulus. A stimulus that triggers one of your sense doors. Which one? The ear. When sound comes into contact with the ear, it sends a signal down your auditory nerve to your brain, and now it's the brain's job to interpret that electric signal to what you perceive mentally as sound. What you perceive as sound is not what I delivered from here. This is simply a vibration. What you hear is not what I'm doing here. This is simply a vibration. The best proof I can give you is between the eardrum and your brain, no sounds travel. It's simply an electric signal. So at that very point, you've got to accept that what you're hearing is not what I'm doing here. You know, everything gets lost in translation. Everything. Beg your pardon? 
<laughs> pineapple? What pineapple? Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. The, the other example. Yes, absolutely, yeah. With the tongue, with the nose, and so on, right? So, you've begun to understand, hopefully, through these examples, that what you perceive out, out, out here in the, in the world that you, you, you've put your sense dose out. You know, these are like agents. These are your five agents. You can call them faculties, you can call them your senses, but really what they are are agents. These agents simply pick up stimuli from the outside world so that your brain can receive electric signals. That's all the brain is interested in. It doesn't, because it can't process anything else. The brain is a circuit. It's an electrical circuit with nerves and neurons that run throughout your body. And you know what nerves carry. They carry signals, electric signals. And they're myelinated so that those electrical signals can travel at, a, at, a, at, a, you know, at quite a rate. You've done, you know, anyone who's done a bit of biology will, will understand these concepts. All the nerves can carry are electrical signals. So therefore, sound doesn't travel to your brain, let alone to your mind. Smell doesn't travel to your brain, let alone your mind. Touch doesn't travel to your brain, let alone your mind. So then why do you think that what you're experiencing is what's out there? It's not. Vibrations don't go any further than your eardrums. Your tongue, as a gentleman reminded kindly, you know, your tongue only picks up molecular shapes. Your nose only picks up molecular shapes. Your fingertips only pick up molecular shapes. Well, besides things like heat, you know, temperature changes and pressure and so on. Because again, what it does is, you know, these are the receptors at the end of your fingertips which get compressed or stimulated, right? And all that travels from that point forward are electric signals. So you've got to accept then, ladies and gentlemen, haven't you, that from the point it turns into electric signal, you, you, have, you can't say anything about what happened on the outside, what's happened on the other side of the fence. Because all you know is, from the here on, it's an electrical signal. But then why do you perceive sight in a different way to, you, in a different way to how you perceive sound? It's because that's the, that's the brain doing that. The brain has a very special function here. It receives the same type of signal to various parts of the brain and then it converts them to various numerous, what we call rupa, forms, right? That is now food for the mind. That's how it happens. So when I go knock, knock, what happens is that process. Vibrations travel to your eardrums, they vibrate. Now there's a little hairs in, in, your, in your ears, they, they, they start to vibrate, right? And then the signal travels to your brain at a particular, particular field, a part of your brain. And then as soon as that is triggered, now this is what it called the brain. Because it travels to the part of the brain that is responsible for sound, as we, you know, that's what they say, responsible for sound, responsible for sight, responsible for, for smell and so on. Those parts now use that stimulus to generate a rupa, which is, which is now what kicks off the mind. Clear so far? Right. Sir? Ah, because it's the same physiology. Now, very good question, right? Let's put it this way. I'm going to answer that question with an example. Now, the other day, 
two of our Anagarikas, they were tasked with doing the sound setup for one of our events in the Dhamma Hall, right? So the two of them came to me with a challenge. They had a problem to solve. So I asked him, what's the problem? He said, so one of them said, Swami Nansa, one of us has to be in the Dhamma Hall, the other has to be in the control room, which is along next to the Dhamma Hall where they have all the mixers and you know they turn the modules up and down. So I'm the one out there who's listening to the sound and he's the one in there who's doing the mixer. So how's that going to work? Because he's not hearing the same thing that I'm hearing and I'm not there doing the, the, the controls, right? So how are we going to sort that out? I said, don't worry about it. So I gave them a solution and you tell me, or at least this is a rhetoric question, I want you to think about why this solution works, okay? So I said, here's what you got to do. First person, go into the Dhamma hall, the other person stand by the controls, right? And now the first person listens to what is being played. So let's say they play some music just to see what the sound setup is like. So listen to it. And once you've listened to it, you go back into the control room and send the other guy out. Right? Because now you know what's wrong about it. What's too loud? Is it too much bass? Too little treble? And so on. You know, what's the mid like? So you go back into the control room and you do the controls and get the other person to confirm whether it's okay. <laughs> get the other person standing now in the Dhamma hall to look at you and confirm whether it's okay. Now you think about why that solution works. Think about it. Will that solution work? What do you think? Okay. I want you to think even. I want you to take it a step further. That was a solution I offered them. And I explained to them why it works. Then, because then I explained to them how sound is simply a manifestation. Let me now explain. I'll walk you through it. It'll answer your question, sir. <clears throat> when the first person goes down to the Dhamma Hall, they perceive, because they both have an impression of what good love sounds like, right? But they'll hear it differently, but they both know what good sounds like. Because for that, to, con to agree on one, they just have to play it once, and they both come outside, and they'll both, this is good for you? This is good for you? Yeah, now they both agreed what good sounds like. It might be perceived differently for both of them, but that's okay, right? So when the first person comes into the Dhamma Hall, they listen to what's wrong about it. Maybe the too much bass, too much treble and so on. They listen to what's wrong about it. And then they go back knowing what they have to change about that sound. They go into the control room and now they start changing. But the other person who comes into the Dhamma Hall can now simply look at the other person and go, yeah, that's fine. Why? Because although they hear the same sound differently, in, they both have a different picture of the same thing that is right. In other words, take these two sides of this vatata, right? Let's imagine I, you see this side and you see the other side, okay? <clears throat> now, if you agree that this is okay and you agree that this is okay, Right? When I turn it around this way, you'll tell me it's not fine. You'll also tell me, no, that's not, that's not all right. But if I turn it around again, then you say, yeah, that's fine. 
Yeah? Now you both agree that this is fine. So it's fine. But you're both seeing, you're perceiving a different, a different image. But nonetheless, because you're happy with this side and you're happy with this side, now this can stay. That is because we perceive things differently. And that's okay. Yeah. Everybody, every, everybody has a benchmark. And that all that needs to happen is your benchmark can be different to mine. But the way, you know, if I'm agreeing that this is what is right and you're agreeing that that is what is right from your perspective, it's fine. It's like <clears throat> we go to a store and they have prices labeled both in dollars and in rupees. Okay? So it says $1. Let's go to the dollar store. Right? And it also has the price in rupees. How much is the dollar these days? How much? 350. Right. So 350. Right? One man has Sri Lankan rupees, the other man has dollar, has a dollar, right? <clears throat> Who gets to buy? They're both right. Because they both got the right amount of money. So if if that if they can tender the right amount of money for that object, you know, whether you give a dollar or you give the 350 rupees, you can still both work out, walk out with that object. But you perceived it differently, right? One says one dollar, the other says three hundred and fifty, not one, three hundred and fifty. <clears throat> I mean, you know, one is one is three hundred and fiftieth of <laughs> of three hundred and fifty. So how come then they can both walk out of the store with the same object? Although they perceive it differently, they both have both agreed on the same thing. So, sir. <clears throat> yes. Perceptions and thresholds. <clears throat> Although we perceive things differently, if we both agree on the outside configuration and our perceptions can still be the same, if I agree that is fine, the other person agrees that's fine, I, although our perceptions are different, we can both agree on the same thing. Do you understand the logic now? Absolutely. What that proves is, what you perceive is simply yours. It's not what's out there. So, you know, you might have something blocking your ears, for instance. Right? You might have some earwax. Right? Maybe you haven't cleaned your ears in a while. Or maybe your, you know, some of the hairs in your ears have started to fall, you know, old age or whatever, right? And so, therefore, you don't, you don't hear it as much as others might do. Some people are less sensitive to some frequencies than others <clears throat> and so on, right? There may be there's some, some medical condition that's affecting how you, how you perceive. But provided they can both agree on one, although the perceptions are different, the result can still be the same. That's how that works. Many? Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we, we all have a we all have an understanding of what normal is, right? Because if you ask if you ask uh, uh, an audit uh, an auditory specialist, they'll tell you between twenty to twenty thousand hertz is what the human ear should be able to perceive. Right? So how do they know that that is the right value? Because they've taken a sample, right, and they've done so many tests. I mean, they haven't tested every human being. Right? What they've done is they've taken a few few as a sample and they've tested them and it, you know, the average, right, the bell curve, 80% of it has come back, 20 to 20,000 hertz. So they've said anyone who can't hear between, between this range, 
is either hard of hearing or they can hear you know sounds that are far beyond what a human being can hear right so our perception of normal is based on the average you know a lot of people today will be perceived as obese if you went back maybe 70 years 80 years 100 years we'd be classed obese if you went back a few years but nowadays you know now societal norms have changed and it's it's you know this is the average like in some countries and i don't want to name any right in some countries right they have actually updated they've updated the the you know the medical definitions of what obese is because you know if they went by the old standards you know more than 90% of the population would be obese so and then they can't cater to all, all that that mass population so what they do is they re, re, reclassify and then they say no no you guys you're not obese now you're you're just a little bit overweight just try and work on that <laughs> so they 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 do that just so that society is livable and you can just you know you, you can function as a society so coming back to the point we we associate objects with these sentimental values we we attribute something that we perceive to outside objects people places now the other day i um i was watching a documentary there's a and this, people are very nice for doing these things but we need to take a step further and try and understand what's working with the human mind there's a there's an organization i think it's in germany and uh, it is indeed um this this gentleman he runs a small uh, non-profitable company and what they what he does is people who are terminally ill when they want when they when they know that their you know their last days are near they can hire this gentleman's services this company's services and what they do is they take them to uh, various places in the country where they have been and where they they can rekindle their you know their their youth maybe places they they've been with their with their spouses uh, places where they be they've been with their friends maybe where they had their first anniversary Hmm? so so you can hire their services for that and he does it for for no no um, he doesn't charge anything for that so you know wonderful man for doing that but as i was watching it i began to think you know i think you know why <laughs> now this this lady who was taken by an ambulance they have a special ambulance that has been uh, designed to to take these people around right uh, this ambulance although they've taken every possible step to try and make that journey comfortable she's got some condition that makes even the tiniest movements excruciatingly painful so now she has to endure that pain to go around the country seeing these places because the emotional pain for her is greater than the physical pain why because you haven't done your job yet as i said last week anagarika mahatmyas you haven't done your job yet hmm? anagarika mahatmyas haven't done their job yet the swami mahatmyas haven't done their job yet hmm? and you people haven't done your job yet sir
of course. Yeah, because these are more powerful, aren't they? Yeah. Now, in that exa- in in the in the story that the documentary that I was watching, uh, this lady she she she's willing to endure that physical pain to go around the country, and you know, I think they they travel the whole day. So her her um, her son-in-law and and her daughter they would put her on her on a on a bed and and you know push it along the 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 pavements and every little bump in that on the on the pavement you know gives her a pain that runs throughout her body and she has to suffer so then they take her to the place i think where she got married it was a church and then they had the uh, her, her, her husband had died previously so they had she had the tombstone and she said you know i'm going to lie right next to him sounds so sweet doesn't it but i want you to take a step further she said i want to lie right next to him now again please don't be offended by anything i say this is not meant to offend this is simply meant to wake you up from your dreams okay see she has she wants to be next to her husband where is the husband all there is are ashes hmm but she feels that that space right next to her husband is very special how come no one else does no one else feels that is special in fact if she had to pay for it she would because she'd say you know now we are united now we lie there together as we once started our life together we end our lives together these are all perceptions they're not real but she is willing to go all that way to lie next to her husband your fault you haven't given her the dhamma yet because she believes that she's first she believes she's a woman you know because all that is is a mind that's all it is a mind that just that that just came into being that just came into existence and then she believes that she's married to that man you know that man's probably dead now he's probably born somewhere else and he's living <laughs> with someone else already but she believes that that's my wife and my that's my husband and that he's still here see how far that illusion has has taken her see the world that she has created for her for herself this is all karma now this is not the fifth sense sensual experience but this is all karma this is all sensuality a world that you create sankaparago purisasakamo you know in his mind man creates a world and that world is called sensuality that world is called the karma world so now he she believes that her husband lies on the ground and and then her place is right next to her next to him his ashes or his dead body because she believes that dead body belongs to my husband just like you felt that this cap belonged to this pen i know some people they'll bring the ashes and they'll keep it you know at home and they say this is these are my husband's ashes my wife's ashes how come ash belongs to someone if all there was was mind and a body and the mind perceived an identity a self because of ignorance so there was no wife no man to die 
It was simply a mind. And because of ignorance, they felt that they were, an, they were a self. Now that they're dead, the body was burned and all there is are now ashes. How come, you know, you've gone so far to as to say that these ashes are also my husband's. There was no husband to begin with. But now the ashes are also your husband's. So imagine, you know, your husband's ashes, right? And the, the, the cat litters on it. How, how much you feel about that? Or someone pay, takes it, and, what's in this? You know, little kid doesn't know what's in it. It's you know, just waste rubbish. You know, it should be in the, <laughs> in the, the old stove, right? Or maybe in the garden. He puts it, uh, he goes and throws it out because he's just ashes. You, that would really upset you. Because, oh, don't throw my husband. You'd feel that way. You feel that way because of this sense of perception. Oh, sorry, this, this sense of self. And every time there is an object in this world, it's like automatically you attribute an individuality to it. You attribute a self to it. You attribute an entity to it, a fixed entity. And that is the world that you create and suffer. This wake-up call is simply to say you're suffering unnecessarily. You don't need to suffer like this. If your son is injured, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if someone you love, your friend, you know, is, is wounded, injured, and so on, maybe he has had a car accident, maybe you get a call today, right? maybe from your, your best friend, or maybe a loved one, maybe your brother, your sister, they've had a car accident. Right? When you get that piece of news, Right, you go into a state, an emotional state, an emotional breakdown. That is suffering that you create for yourself. It is an unnecessary suffering. All that happens simply because you perceive that there is a brother, there is a sister to whom this has happened. Whereas in fact, all that's happened is a body, a physical body, in which there's a mind that arises and passes away, has come into contact. Has you know an accident has happened, agreed, right? An accident has happened, but it was not your brother in the accident. It was simply a mind and body. It's because you feel that's my brother, you suffer. But it was somebody else. I mean, how many accidents happen on a daily basis? You don't worry about that. How many dead bodies do you see? It doesn't bother you. But if that dead body was someone that belonged to you, now you're in shock. Now you start to grieve. So you see, grievance is part of this, this, you know, it's it's a side effect of suffering. And when that suffering comes to being, when that jati comes to being, now you project all those things that you feel are people that you believe exist in this world onto the outside. And once that projection happens, now you are trapped. It's like a spider trapped in its own web. When you create this world, you are trapped in it. The only way out is to figure this out, understand this and comprehend this so that you can come out of the own web that you weave. You weave your own web. It's like you make your own coffin. No one's doing it for you. You're doing it yourself because of lack of understanding of the Dhamma. So knock, knock. A mind is born. That mind came into being for one reason and one reason only. To perceive. To identify to recognize a sound. The sound has been perceived and now it's the mind's job to pass away.
That is all that's meant to be. Now, of course, you can recognize that it was the knock-knock, you know, this is, this is glass. That's fine. That's not the problem. You know, someone's hitting a bass drum, it's perfectly fine. And Arahant will still say, that was a bass drum. Or that was a cymbal. Or that was the flute. That was the piano. That was a, that was a harmonica. And Arahant can, can recognize these things. What they don't perceive, that you perceive, are that these sounds are separate entities from everything else. It's a bit like this. Uh, you know how uh, when you eat ice cream, right, you have ice cream that comes in various flavors, strawberry ice cream, vanilla, chocolate, and so on. You can perceive, say, say strawberry ice cream, for instance, Okay. You can make, did you know you can make strawberry ice cream without even showing a strawberry to the ice cream? They, they, you know, they don't even bring strawberries to the factories. There's anything but strawberries in that factory. Right? But when you eat that ice cream, don't you feel, don't you perceive that you're eating strawberries? So much so that these days, you know, strawberry ice creams taste better than strawberries, don't they? Now, actually, that is the benchmark. Huh? How much do strawberries? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How, how much? How much do strawberries taste in relation to strawberry ice cream? How much does chocolate straight put chocolate to a side? Maybe vanilla. How much does it taste in in relation to uh, to vanilla ice cream? How how much does a banana or a, or maybe a mango taste? How mango is is it? The mangoness of an eye of a mango is now benchmarked against mango ice cream. So when you eat mango ice cream, right, you perceive mango, but it's never had mango in it. It's never even seen a mango. So, but it, that, that doesn't stop you from perceiving it, does it? Meaning, this perception is not something that has to be on the outside. See, this is further proof. The perception of strawberry doesn't need a strawberry because that perception does not come from the strawberry. I'll say that again because this is good stuff. The perception of strawberry does not come from a strawberry. That is why without a strawberry, I can still give you the perception of strawberry. That's why strawberry ice cream qualifies in your, with your taste buds you can close your eyes, have a bit of strawberry ice cream and go, wow, I like it. That's strawberry ice cream. It was not strawberry ice cream. You don't need strawberries for that. How so then? It's because the perception of strawberry has nothing to do with strawberry. The perception of, <laughs> the perception of mango has nothing to do with mango. In other words, it was not the outside world object that gave you that perception. A perception is simply a perception, meaning it's simply an energy. It's an energy. It's a creation that happens in the mind. A rupa, a rasa rupa, or a, or a taste rupa, right, is perceived as mango. It is the recognition that you give it, right? It is how you identify it. It's the perception that you give it. These are all mental formations. Nothing in the outside world has to relate to it. That's how the sugar, the taste of sugar can be given to you without sugar. 
because these are all perceptions isn't it isn't it time and time again evidence that what you perceive is not what's there on the outside in the outside world but why am i why am i actually talking about these things to you because of this because when you believe that these things that you perceive are actually there outside what does life become for you now a quest of going after them now when you want mango ice cream or when you want a mango and you believe that mango comes that perception of mango comes from the mango now you have to go to the fruit stall to get yourself some mango because you believe it came from there but if you can understand that these are simply perceptions right now you fall out of love with those perceptions clearly without the mango it's not possible to give you the mango perception i agree and admit that is true because you need somehow you know if those if there are receptors on your taste buds you know those taste buds have to be triggered and there's a certain chemical formula and there's a certain certain chemical structure that has to do that job and if it's a mango that does it then we call it a mango fair enough and so you need that particular shape but the thing is this when you understand that this is this is simply a perception of the mind you fall out of love with those perceptions you understand that this is simply a process and once you understand this is simply a process now you stop giving it value that you otherwise would that is what happens so therefore i'm not saying here that an arahant does not perceive mango he does but he does he he's fallen out of love with mango because he understands that it's simply a perception to him all things are equal all things feel the same i won't say feel the same here he all things are the same value in other words nothing is of value all things are perceived the same but a mango tastes a mango a strawberry tastes a strawberry a banana tastes a banana that hasn't changed but you have an affinity to certain things and a repulsion to others perhaps that he doesn't have why so because once you separate something from everything else now we start to talk in the realms of what i like and what i don't like this liking and not liking business has no place in a world where you haven't separated anything you can only like something that you have separated right and if i ask you who's your best friend and then i ask you why do you like you know what is it about your best friend that you makes it your best friend you makes him or her your best friend you'll tell me i like him i like what he does i like what she does right how he she, how she walks walks with me talks with me treats me and so on in other words what you're saying is you know there's a, there among all the friends out there there's one friend that i have separated for myself that friend is very special i like that friend now you're talking about liking because you have separated and you're talking about separation because you have liked in other words attachment <clears throat> without that attachment they're all just friends and in in other words in in fact if you go one step further there are no such things as friends and enemies again these are perceptions of the mind as why how, how is it that your enemy is someone else's friend how is that possible how is your friend someone else's enemy and how is someone else's enemy your friend and they simply perceptions but don't those perceptions give you plenty of heartaches plenty of grief plenty of sorrow but if you were able to transcend these feelings of animosity right both hate and love 
if you are able to transcend both these emotions and simply contain yourself within the realms of metta, karuna, mudita, and upeksha, which are, which are very, very, very different. They are worlds apart from love and hate. Because love and hate are all based on the perception of self. It's your connection, your individual identified connection with somebody else. That's what love and hate are. But metta, karuna, mudita, upeksha, in the, in the noble sense, have nothing to do with self. They're simply to do with the mind and suffering. Where a mind suffers and, and you have an intention of helping that mind come out of suffering, that's when we start talking about metta. That's when we start talking about karuna, mudita, and upeksha. It's nothing to do with the self. That's why, you know, this, the four noble abodes, or the, they call it the four brahmic abodes, the Satara Brahma Viharana, right? But Brahma is also a noble one in the Buddha's words. If you ask the Buddha who is a Brahma, he'll tell you that this is a noble one who's understand, understood the Dhamma. Fair enough, you know, however you want to look at it. These four noble abodes of Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeksha are how your mind conducts itself to helping other, not other minds, all minds. Your mind, their mind makes no difference. How um, it is simply the mind's approach to free them from suffering. That's what metta is. That's what karuna is. The mind's approach to freedom from suffering. You can't free a mind from suffering with hate, and neither can you do it with love. When you <clears throat> see, I'll give you the simplest example before we have to conclude for today. When you feel worldly love towards someone. I'm not talking about noble love, okay? When you talk about, you know, the, the other day we talked about dirty love, that love, right? Just very noble, casual love, right? Normal love. When you feel that love towards someone, one of the, these are some of the things you might do. First, you want to express it to the other person. You want the other person to know that you love them. Hmm? These, are, these are typical behaviors. You want the other person to know that you love them. And you want to express your love. Right? So one of the, some of the things that you might do to, do to accomplish these things is you might talk to the other person and say, I really like you, I love you, and so on. The moment you say these words, you're expecting the other person to start to care about the fact that you love them. In other words, in their lives, you want you to be someone valuable. You want them to revere you. You want them to see you as an object of value. This is why I say it's a very selfish thing. It's not a selfless thing. It's a very selfish thing. But in a mundane sense, it's how the world works. I'm not here to change the world upside down. I'm simply here to turn you right side up and let the world be as it is. Right, so in in other words, when you turn the right side up, you'll be like, the world is upside down. That's how it will be. So this love that people want to express to someone is because you know they want the other person to know that they love, and it gives them a sense of value. When you have someone to love, it gives you a sense of value. Because you feel like you have someone for you. 
And why do you want them to know? Because you want them to value you and to make you feel from time to time at least that you are someone they care about. No, think about it. If someone doesn't care, right? Someone doesn't care. Someone you love doesn't care about you. How does that feel? Yeah, of course. That feels really uncomfortable. You know, whether that is children, whether that is parents, siblings, friends, whoever, right? Imagine your, your girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, just take, you know, a very basic example. Right? You love them, but they don't show that they love you in return. Are you going to be okay with that or are you going to try and do something about it? Typically, you would do something about it. You might talk to them and ask them, you know, is something wrong? Have I done something to upset you? Why are you saying that? Let's say they're okay. Right? They're perfectly fine. They're happy, jolly as jolly could ever be. Right? They're going out with their friends. Right? They are going to the parties, having a really good time. But they don't give a, you know, two cents about, about you. They don't give a damn about you. They don't care about you, but you love them more than anything else. And they don't, they don't, they don't concern you. They don't, they don't give you any recognition. Now, what might you do? You, are you going to be so happy because they're happy? Or are you going to go and talk to them and go, have I done something to upset you? you, why, you why aren't you talking to me? Why don't you, why don't you even look at me? Huh? Those days you didn't used to be like this. You, don't, you used to talk to me. Why aren't you talking to me now? What are you looking for? You're looking for recognition. <clears throat> you need to feature in their lives. <laughs> when, when you love someone, you need to feature in their lives. <clears throat> When they talk home, when they talk to their folks, they have to talk about you. Imagine that. You're at home, your, your wife takes a call to her parents, and she's talking about everything but you. She's talking about the party, she's talking about how they did the home up, she's talking about the children, she's talking about her friends, she's talking about your friends, but not about you. At the end of that conversation, I think you know, you're going to have something to talk to her about. You know, excuse me. You know, in that conversation you had with your mother, didn't I ever come up in that conversation? Did she, did she, did she not even ask about me? Don't these things matter? You know, when someone, someone you know has met with someone else that you know, and they come and tell you, have you not heard people say, did they ask about me? Huh? Didn't, didn't they ask about me? Or didn't they ask after me? Why? Because when you love someone, you want them to feature you in their life. In other words, this is a selfish emotion. You're doing it for yourself. That is why metta, karuna, mudita and upeksha have nothing to do with this kind of selfish love. It starts where you begin to understand that the mind suffers because of this sense of self. And from there on, the purpose of your existence is to exterminate existence at its roots. You become ashamed of it. You become weary of it. You become embarrassed of it. The fact that you feel that I'm here. If at the end of this sermon I felt like, you know, I give them, I gave them all a good talk, aren't I a good sermon, a good preacher? If I were to ever feel that, I'd feel very embarrassed about myself. Because the truth isn't that. It's a complete and utter lie. What happened was simply Vipaka. That happened. 
if I felt that I was here and you were here and I gave you a talk and you were all very happy to hear me speak and, you know, you were all very, very receptive to it, very engaged and all that, you know, I felt that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good preacher. Hmm? I would feel very embarrassed if I ever felt that way. Ashamed of myself. Because I wouldn't recognize immediately that the mind has gone crazy. Because there is no such thing. All this separation is just a nonsense. And you know this, and you, you understand this with first-hand experience. Every time you separate, you have to suffer. All the separations that you have done in your life, now you have become their guardian. You have to now protect it, keep it safe, safeguarded, and all the other things that come with it. You know, it's, it's a complete baggage that you have hung on yourselves. So to free yourself from that, you know, there are certain aspects of life now you have to fulfill as duties, responsibilities and obligations. Please keep doing them. Because when you are there, be there. Right? When you are with your children, be with your children. It's not about the physical presence I'm talking about here. I'm talking about your mental approach to it. Your monk attitude. It's your attitude to life that determines whether you are a monk or a lay person. You can all live lay lives. But internally, become a monk. As I said, these robes are not what qualifies me to be a monk. Because I could be in robes and behave like a very lay person. Because being lay is an attitude. It's your approach to things. So you can live in, in the lives that you are. Because there may be certain circumstances from which you can't uproot yourself now. It's too late for that. But it's never too late to take a monk's attitude to life. A monk's attitude is, a, is an attitude whereby he recognizes, realizes, sees that the only suffering there is, is when he identifies himself as a self, when he separates part of the world for himself, all because of jati, when the mind goes crazy because of ignorance and attachment. Right? When, that, when he recognizes that, now that is the beginning of a big coup. That is the beginning of a big coup. You understand the etymology of the word bhikkhu, right? It's the, it's the fight against existence. It's the fight against sense of a self. That is what it is. You can do that doing all the things you do. You can do it driving. You can do it looking after your children. You can do it washing the dishes, doing the, you know, washing your clothes, looking after the sick, the elderly, the poor. You can do it all. But there may be some among you who are fortunate enough to make the jump. And if you are, then do so. Why do I encourage that? Because this environment is a million times more conducive to you achieving that aim than the lives in which you are. That is why Guru Hamdra always keeps going on about if you can come, do come. If you can't, then still do what we do with, while we are here. Because in this environment, all you get fed is the truth. No one speaks lies here. And I'm not talking about where are you going? I'm going there when I'm actually going there. That's not the kind of lie I'm talking about. I'm talking about the other kind of lies. The lies where people go, lovely movie. Let's, go, let's all go see it. There's a new restaurant in town. Let's all go have some food there. Right, nice song, isn't it? Shall I get you the album? These are the lies that entangle you in suffering because that is not true. Were you all here for the Dakinenyo last event? Most of you. Hmm? You know the background music that they play? I was contemplating on that and I hope you were as well when you heard it. 
if you hear that music, right? Now you can do it next time. So now that if you haven't done it before, you can do it next time. When you hear that music, each note is an individual note. But the reason that you feel that it is harmonic, uh, or that it's part, it's 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 uh, rhythmic. It's part of a rhythm, right? It's it's very nice. It's lovely. Is because you piece all that together and you you create this thing, this fixed thing, this one entity called a song, or a piece of music in your mind. It's not really out there. What's out there is simply that's all. They're individual sounds. That's why you know when something goes off. You know, like when, when, when something is not harmonic or when, when, you know, when, when some notes are played and it doesn't sound right, how do you know it? Because you already have an, have an impression of what it needs to sound like. And then you know that you know, this is out of tune. Hmm? That's because you already have, uh, you're, 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 you're trying to shoehorn. You're trying to shoehorn all these sounds that you get from the outside world into this, 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 this fixed entity, into this frame that you have already built for yourself. That's why you know it's not right. That's why when I draw this, no comments please. When I draw this, you tell me, yes, that's a face. But if I were to draw it like this, you'll tell me that's a warped face. Because this is a better fit than that for your image of a face. Because your face has to be round, not like that. Every time you see something through your eyes, you, already, you, you always try and fit it into this impression that you already have in your mind. And when it does, it feels good. That's what happens. When it doesn't, you, you feel suffering. And you think that is what suffering is. That's not what suffering is. Suffering is you having this pre-built, pre-configured configuration of how things ought to be already implanted in your mind. And now you walk around trying to fit everything into that projection that you keep casting outside. That's what happens. You already have a, have a foot size and you now try and find a slipper, a shoe that fits. When you find a good fit, you go, lovely shoe. When you don't, you go, wrong shoe. shoe shoe's wrong. It's not the shoe that's wrong. Your foot is wrong. But how many people would agree with that? Because what they'll say, this shoe is not right. I'm going to go buy myself another pair of shoes. Because they'll say the shoe is wrong. It's the wrong size. No, your foot is wrong. How many people are going to accept that? Hardly any at all. But you do. That's why you're here. Because you're here to change yourself. Imagine if the shoe was wrong, you had to change the size of your foot. Huh? Imagine a world like that. There is a world like that. That's here. If the shoe's not right, you have to change this. You have to change your foot, not go looking for another shoe. Make sense? All right. Let's conclude for today then. I'm going to take two more minutes just to explain one other thing, just finally, because I thought it was important. You know how a lot of people believe that in Buddhism, practicing Buddhist philosophy and to achieve Nibbana, you got to do a lot of meditation. And how people, they take a meditation object and they do what they call dahan 
or absorptions, right? Typically, what they do is they focus on an object, one object. It might be a color, it might be a fire, might be a leaf, might be their breath, right? In out zone. The concept we are trying to explain here, you understand, is to help you figure that there is nothing fixed. So if there is nothing fixed and all there is are manifestations, tell me then, how is it that a mind can attain Nibbana? The Nibbana that we speak of, by focusing on one object, if you constantly keep focusing on that one object, an object that exists, right? then there will always be one object out there and one object in here. So it's myself focusing on one object. Nibbana is not that. Nibbana is freeing yourself from the perception that there are fixed entities, that the world is entirely anicca, cause and effect, and whatever you feel as a fixed entity is a result of dukkha, but that you shouldn't be feeling that way because there is nothing that can be separated like that, and that is anatta, that is the understanding of that. But if you completely ignore that and then focus on an individual object, that could be a color, that could be you know, a leaf, it could be the breath, it could be your nostrils, whatever. Right? Again, you've confined yourself to focusing on an object that doesn't exist. Now keep contemplating on that object for 500 years. You will be able to concentrate your mind. I give you that. But the Nibbana that we are talking about, you're not moving one, not even a step closer to it. Because to achieve that, it's not about focusing on one object. It's focusing on the reality of all things. That is why our approach to Nibbana, we don't feature a lot of meditation as the world conventionally understands meditation. We do have meditation programs. And as soon as we are done with the uh, rest house out there, work is done there, we're going to re resume our meditation programs. And you know, most of you have, you know, you've, you've come along. You, you did come when we had them, you know, back in the day. We had to stop it because of COVID, right? But even in those meditation programs, you know what features a lot is really the, the talks as well as the help that we give you to contemplate on life as it goes on, rather than fix your mind on one object and contemplate on that. It helps with focusing your mind on one object. Indeed, that's why it's called concentration meditation or samatha bhavana. Right? But this is vipassana, vidarshana, or insightfully comprehending all forms of existence, not just focusing on one object. I'll leave you with that for today. All right. Let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, enchanting Pirith, listening to the Dhamma, and engaging in various meritorious deeds today. Let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in the presence of the Lord Buddha's teaching. With immense gratitude, let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha, and passed it down through the generations of the Noble Lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. 
Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us transfer maids to Guru Swami Nuhansi as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery, the Anagarikas and the Anagarikas attached to the monastery as well. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May, through the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who contributed to the construction of the monastery to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. And may through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers, fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped, supported and assisted us along the way. And by the power of these merits, may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sad, sad, sad. Let us take a moment to transfer the merits to, to the devas, brahmas, spirits, and demons, primarily the Sakha Deva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudasasana. Let us transfer merits to those who have been our guardian deities and kept a watchful eye over us to keep us out of harm's way. And may to the powerful May to the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, and to all those who have been families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in Sansara, and to those who helped, supported, assisted, and assisted us along the way. May, let us also take a moment to transfer merits to the members of the armed forces, as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. And may all those who lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to all those who lost their lives to natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, blizzards, pandemics, and so on. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey in Sansara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them. And may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us resolve that may, through the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of Arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may by the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an Arahatun Vahanse or an Arahateran in Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sad, sad, sad. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. And the members of the Mahasangha will now transfer their blessings to you. Raga Ginning Detma Desha Ginning 
निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार लोक सियलु सत्मयो निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार निबान परम सुखयन सुखित तार राग गिनी देश गिनी मोह गिनी निवान सप लबेवा निवान सप लबेवा निवान सप लबेवा तुम रोंगे सूसी अनंत महागुण बलिन सिलु लोक सिलु सत्यम निबान परम सुखेन सुखित तरवेत्वा साधु साधु साधु